I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides celebrating our September birthdays in very uncool, low-key ways. You and I had dinner last night at an Indian restaurant. That's not that uncool. That's pretty cool. That's cool, but... It was outside. There was nobody there. Like, I don't know. You know, some people are like, woo, let's party. And I'm like, that involves people. No. So, (laughs) you know, compared to the average person's cool, it was sort of uncool. To me, eating Indian food on a Saturday night at a place that offers low-cost wine options is very cool. So we may be a little biased in thinking that, Reading people are the coolest people. So most weeks we talk about books and being a book lover in terms of exciting new releases or the ways in which writers create their imagined worlds and the characters who inhabit them or enthusiastic book clubs. But today we're talking about how books can literally change lives because books are a business and can generate income. In this week's episode, we speak to Elizabeth Sen Alvey, who is the executive director of Emerging Workforce Initiative, a nonprofit in Louisville, Kentucky that targets ways to help marginalized youth who have systemic or personal issues that could impede their journey into the workforce develop marketable skills. And one of the programs that they offer is the Bookworks. So the BookWorks is a social enterprise, and that's a program that helps address local teens and young adults' unmet needs. And those unmet needs might be poverty, homelessness, limited education, but those needs are met through a market-driven approach, or in other words, teaching through learning a business. The folks at Emerging Workforce Initiative were inspired by a similar program called More Than Words in Boston, Massachusetts, a youth program that has for 20 years empowered young people to take charge of a business and their lives through books. So we take a look at how our secondhand books in the Louisville community have helped young people in our city. But first, I'm going to Maine. I'm going on a trip. You are abandoning me to go up north where people are more vaccinated. They are more vaccinated and they have blueberries and they have lobster. And I'm looking forward to it. Um, back in February or March, my husband and I had decided we were going to go on a big blowout trip. Now that COVID was going to be under control by summer, we were going to go on a two-week trip to Italy. Well, that didn't really work out. Now we're, we're taking a road trip on the coast of Maine, which isn't Italy, but still pretty darn good in my opinion. And so I have all of my Maine books lined up that I'm going to read. I've already started on one. And so I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to take lots of pictures and send them to you to make you jealous. That sounds awesome. Maine's <laughs> on my list. Maine's on my list. But on that note, there will be a rebroadcast episode next week. On a more serious note, Carrie, we're recording this on Sunday, September 12th, but um, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of September 11th. It just brought back all those memories and made me think about what I was doing on that day. And so, Carrie, can you remember where you were and what you were doing? Yes, I was teaching sixth grade language arts. I think it was my planning period, I'm pretty sure, because the French teacher across the hall walked over into my room and said, you know, one of the Twin Towers fell. And so I walked back across the hall. This was back in the day where teachers still had actual televisions on carts that they would (laughs) roll. You know, I think we had VHS machines. So she and I watched because it was just nonstop coverage as it should have been. And I remember at that time, you know, kids didn't have cell phones. Gosh, probably no kid had a cell phone at that point. You know, when the kids came back, they had maybe their teachers had said something about it or they had watched like a news program and it was interrupted. Anyway, you know, with the kids, we just kind of went on with our day. It, It was very different than what the situation would be like now, because now kids would be getting texts from their parents or getting notifications from social media. You know, everybody's phone would be blowing up if something like that happened now. But one thing I do remember, my husband, the company he works for at that time, they had a program with uh, some of the airlines. And so I remember calling my husband just to see if he had heard about it. And 
at that point, he said, there's another plane. And so I'm pretty sure that that was the plane that that ended up crashing in Pennsylvania. But it was eerie, you know, to sort of know that there was more that was coming. Yeah. Um, he couldn't tell me more than that because of security issues. But I remember that because it it made me feel like I had this just horrible secret, you know, that, right. and I, it, and it wasn't even enough that something's going to happen. So it was just not good. What about you? So at that time we were living in Eastern Kentucky in Moorhead, small town. And my oldest child was three or four and he was at morning preschool. I was a stay at home mom and it was a beautiful sunny day and he was at preschool. I was at home folding laundry in my bedroom on my bed and my middle child, my youngest child hadn't even been born yet, but my middle child was about two. He was a toddler and he was sitting next to me playing with his toys and I had the TV on in the background and and then it happened and I heard it and I saw the coverage and of course my immediate panic as a young mother was for the child that wasn't with me and being separated from that child, even though he was just like a few miles away at a little church preschool. So I remember calling the preschool and putting my other child in the car and we went down to get him because I just, we we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was going on. And I just wanted him back with me, you know, so we were together. And so once I got him and we came home, I just, I shouldn't have probably done this, but I just watched the TV coverage pretty much all day long. They played that one clip of the plane flying into the second tower over and over and over until it's like, I even when I closed my eyes or I didn't have the TV on, I could just like, it just kept rolling in my head. Before we lived in Eastern Kentucky, we lived in Virginia, uh, an hour or two outside of Washington, DC. And we had some good friends who lived there who contacted me and asked if they could make our home in Kentucky sort of their emergency meeting place with other loved ones and other places in case they got separated from one another in some way, that they could use our home as their meeting spot. I think they were concerned being so close to Washington, D.C., that there might be an invasion or, you know, we just had no idea. And right. so that um, I guess they figured Kentucky was far enough from you know, those kinds of centers of importance in some way that it would be okay. But um, it was just sort of a a surreal time. And I was, you know, asking my oldest son, who is now in his early 20s, if he remembered anything about that time, which he didn't because he was only three or four at the time. So I, you know, I told him the story of that day. But it's kind of crazy to me that such an important event in our lives is something that our children don't remember or weren't even born for. Right. It's probably, you know, I'm sure it's how people who are older than us, you know, when they say, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Right. Exactly. It's a a similar experience. So I made a post on, on our Instagram account yesterday. It was a picture of a book that I read many years after the 9-11 happened, but it's about 9-11 called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Safran Foyer. I don't know if I said his name correctly, but that book, I remember had such a huge impact on me when I read it, but it's about a nine-year-old boy whose father dies uh, in one of the towers during 9-11. And he finds a key in his father's closet and he doesn't know what it goes to. And he just feels like he needs to know what does this key go to? And so he's goes on this quest and he goes to all five boroughs of New York City to figure out what this key goes to. And in the process, learns about his dad and brings him some some closure to his father's death. But that book really blew me away when I read it. So I read Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and really, you know, thought it was a powerful book. And then later, I think I saw it at a used book sale. And I was like, oh, I haven't read this. I ended up getting it again and reading it again, finishing it. I mean, because it's an excellent book, but you know, I got several chapters in. I was like, oh, I've been here before. But I did see a book. It's a middle grade book called Towers Falling by Jewel Parker Rhodes. And she writes books for middle grade and young teens. And the, the cover of that book is, it's really unique and interesting. It, it makes me want to read it. So that might be one that I pick up. 
you know, as soon as I, I'm looking at my gigantic stack of books <laughs> on the floor near my bedside table, it, it got too big for my table. So it's now on the floor. So it, it will have to come sometime after I make my way through some of those. So, Well, you know, we need to talk to Elizabeth about how all of these books, once we've read them, can help other people. Absolutely. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So we found out about BookWorks through another guest, Claire Wallace, who uh, is the executive director of South Louisville Community Ministries and the Rosewater Bookstore, which is a nonprofit bookstore that's associated with that. And she, when we interviewed her, talked about BookWorks and how that is another nonprofit that they pair up with. And you run BookWorks. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at BookWorks and what is BookWorks? Absolutely. So I have worked in the field, what I like to call the intersection of workforce development and youth development for a super long time. We don't have to go into exactly how long, but a number (laughs) of decades, and really have done some very traditional programming. I would say many years ago, started out providing direct service to young people, and then shifted quite a bit of my time and energy towards system change. So, you know, what causes so many young people to have difficulty or to struggle when they leave home or leave foster care or leave some sort of institution and try to go out on their own. A lot of the work that I've been doing has been around building partnerships, evaluating programs, bringing new funding to the community. And it occurred to me about four years ago that I really missed that hands-on programming with young people, that time that I spent with young people. And it gave me a chance. I really took a a very serious look at what had worked in the past around workforce development and kind of that life skill development, you know, programming that exists both in Louisville and around the country and realized that there are a lot of folks that still kind of struggle to find the right formula. So, you know, of the programs that we found that were really doing it well, they had some sort of real world hands-on experience where young people could be with adults who really had a keen interest in who they were as people. They could be uh, experiencing day-to-day kind of activities or tasks that help them to build skills with those adults kind of nearby saying, yeah, that worked really well, or maybe you need to work on that just a little bit more. So, you know, a social enterprise is not a new idea, but it is something that, that we decided to try. So the BookWorks really is a, a social enterprise, a hands-on, it is an actual business that gives young people an opportunity to learn those work skills, to learn how to run a business, while with adults that really, as I said, have a keen interest in who they are. So, you know, we work out of YMCA Safe Place. Um, That's one of our key partners. The other, as you mentioned, is uh, South Louisville Community Ministries. And between those two locations, we are able to run a a book resale business, employing what we call disconnected or homeless youth and young adults. And in the process of doing the book business, the real business behind what we're doing is giving them support, giving them encouragement, trying to help them get back on a path to reach their goals. And they have plenty of them. They have a vision for their future that is pretty exciting to be a, a part of. So that's, that's what the book works is intended to do. So why books specifically? Had you heard about programs in other places uh, where books worked well, or why did you choose books? That's a great question. And I, you know, I often tell the young people we're working with as we're hauling around these heavy boxes of books, we work a lot of the time on the second floor, we've worn up and down steps. Maybe we should have, should have taken and donated socks or something that's not quite <laughs> heavy. Um, the reason why we decided on books, number one, is because schooling, in some ways, education has been disrupted for most of the young people that we work with. They have a number of life experiences that have just made success in school a struggle. So by having books around, 
we had a strong suspicion that young people would really want to talk about the books. And that's exactly what happens. So that, that was a keen part of it. Yes, that we also looked around at what other social enterprises had been successful in other parts of the country and found a program called More Than Words in Boston, Mass. And actually took a trip up there. They have some training that they offer to nonprofits like us to talk about how a social enterprise model of working with youth and young adults can be super effective. In, in Boston, they have quite an operation. They've been in business, I think, about 20 years. So they have 100,000 books online in any given time. But, you know, they really inspired us. This is a model that really seems to engage young people. Yeah, so that, that's why we decided on books. What is the process for someone getting into the BookWorks program? Well, we want to make it as easy as possible. And there are actually several different ways that young people can come and work with us. So as I said, we are located on the campus of YMCA Safe Place on Crittenden Drive. They have a space where uh, older youth and young adults who are homeless or housing unstable come for a day shelter. So, you know, we certainly work with the young people who are there. That workforce, if you will, is very ad hoc. Obviously, it depends on who happens to be coming in that day, how interested they are in getting involved in the project. But we have had young people who have come to us and said, I'm really into books or I really want something to do while I'm waiting for housing, which in our community can take weeks for a young person who's living on the street to get into any kind of housing. So they come to the day shelter and we give them something to do. Other young people are part of a, a partner program. Um, so we have several partners that we work with. For example, the Summer Works program where they employ you know, folks for seven weeks at a time and they place them in a workplace. We're one of the workplaces. So they get paid through that Summer Works program to come and work with us. And then we have other partners who have longer internships. And again, we're the work site and those programs pay them. We've been successful enough after about three and a half years now that we have a payroll where we put young people on to our payroll directly. But we still use those partnerships wherever we can too. So you, you mentioned being on the second floor and carrying lots of books. So what do the jobs look like for the young people at BookWorks and what types of skills do they end up learning? It's a great question. So I would say there's a foundation of skills that we really work on. And those have to do with teamwork, communication, setting goals and staying organized while you're working towards those goals. So that's kind of the, you know, what a lot of folks call soft skills mm-hmm. because they're needed in every workplace. And particularly if you bumps on the road, that kind of communication and working as a part of a team, you know, you can be a little rusty there, or maybe you just didn't pick them up along the way. So those are the foundational skills. And then with each young person, you know, we get to know what they're interested in, what kind of skills they feel like they'd like to develop. I think that was one of the other things about doing this type of social enterprise is that you know, if you're really interested in computers, you spend some time on the computer and you have a chance to kind of hone those skills. If art or, you know, something more creative is something that you're interested in, then that might be something that, you know, we're able to develop those skills a little bit more. We're working with a young person right now who came in and talked probably 20 minutes about all the things that they had done in high school that was around social justice and activism and And I said, what would you like to do around that? What kind of really piques your interest? And she said, well, do you have any books around that? (laughs) I said, no, that would be a hunt, right? Like that's not one of the categories. We have history, we have biography. Uh, Quite frankly, don't have a lot of social justice books. So we got a grant to purchase books that now that young person, you know, has gone through the entire process of, you know, identifying which ones we want to get, purchasing them and now is working with folks at the public library to host an event where the books will be given away. So, you know, that's an example of how, you know, a young person was able to say, this is what I really care about. And we could tailor the experience to what they wanted to do. 
That's awesome. I saw that in uh, a newsletter that I recently got in my email from you all about the Social Justice Project, and I was going to ask you about that. Did that require like the young person to apply for grants and things like that? Because that is a very marketable skill. I know it really did. We had a team of actually young people that one person started it and then they found a full-time job with benefits. So the second person came along and was able to pick it up and keep going with it. So, I mean, absolutely. These are marketable skills. We, we really want them to feel that they have a lot to offer, <laughs> try to put as many different kinds of experiences in front of them, you know, in terms of opportunities and some you know, we're going to appeal to them more than others. And that's what we want. It's not like every workplace where you have to produce X on time, or you have to serve so many people, you know, before, during your shift or something, it really is an environment where we can be pretty flexible. What happens to the books that people donate? How do you then distribute these books? Right. So, you know, we like to tell donors and follow through on a promise that every, something happens to everything, but everything is reused. So it's either given away in the community. So, you know, it could be a project like I just described. We've given books away to childcare centers, to parent baby programs, given a lot of those away, GED programs. I mean, any place that says, you know, we really could use more resources. So we want to make sure that they are given away as much as possible. The second place that we put them is online. It is a marketable skill to know how to use the computer and you know manage an online bookstore. We use it uh, an existing platform. We could and probably will at some point go to the next level and really establish you know our own platform for selling them. But but at this point, it's a pretty good experience for learning you know those technology skills. So we have the store at the Rosewater, the partnership with South Louisville Community Ministries. And at first we were putting a lot of books on the shelf because we were partners before the, the store opened. Now we're really putting on the more unusual books, the rare books, the collectible items. So that's another place. And then the last place that we sell the books, we have community sales. So YMCA Safe Place has a large gym floor. We carry them all downstairs, put them out on tables. And um, I think that's probably the most enjoyable for the young people. I generally have to chase them away. Well, Um, I was going to say, that's like every book lover's dream are those used book sales, whether it be, you know, with Bookworks or someplace else around town. So that's super fun. Yeah, it is. We have a great time with it and it's exhausting, but if a young person seems tired after working with me for a while, you know, several weeks in a row, we're getting ready for the sale. The moment the, the doors open, they are buoyant. They're so excited to kind of present it and share their work really essentially with folks. So it's a lot of fun. So the money that you all make from your sales, does that go back into being able to pay a lot of those young people for their time? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets paid. I want to make sure that they understand that we value their time, that we value what it is that they're bringing. So as I said before, some of them get paid by a partner program, an internship program that where they're receiving, you know, additional support and transition to a full-time job and we're the workplace. So we just sign off on the timesheets and they get paid through that program. In other situations, we have young people now on the payroll. So, you know, they weren't part of another program. We wanted to make sure that, you know, they were with us until they were ready to transition or they found another job. So we put them on our payroll. Other young people are paid if they just want to work. You know, I want to come and help for a book sale. You know, I can spend all day on Saturday here. We give them $10 Kroger cards for every hour that they work. So the least that they'll make is $10 an hour. I mean, it sounds like it's flexible enough that there isn't necessarily like an end time where they have to have found something else. Correct. Really, uh, I've never had a circumstance where I've asked a young person to stop helping or stop coming or you can't be part of it anymore. Really is an important component that there's always, you know, something that you can do. I will say what we usually find is that we are nudging them to find a full-time job, if that's what they told us that they wanted, or a permanent part-time job, 
because that gives someone else a chance to come in, first of all. And second of all, this, you know, what we're doing right now doesn't have the promotional opportunities that we really want to set them on. We really want to set them up with employers who will give them career path, an opportunity for full-time, if that's what they want to do, benefits, promotions, that sort of thing. And I'm very upfront with them. That's not possible here or not likely here. You know, we want to give them um, support, encouragement, skills, a wage that is a bridge to that more permanent situation. So with the books that you're selling at the Rosewater and also online, and you're selling through a site called A Libris, which I used to work in vintage books, so I'm familiar with that site, but you're working with books that are vintage, antique, or rare in some way. And so what are the young people that you work with, what are they doing in order to research and prepare those books for sale? Right. So on a, on a regular basis, we'll bring in collection of books, right, that have been donated. And at the moment, we're picking up books from folks who want to make a donation just to kind of meter number of books that are coming into Safe Place so that they can prioritize providing those services. So we'll bring them in and have a quantity at a time and either as a group or individually, if a young person is really uh, experienced at doing this, we'll do some sorting. So they make the decision based on a kind of search criteria that they do online. Is this a $1 book for our community sale? Is it a vintage book that you know looks like it might, might have a little history, might be of interest to a collector? Or is it a little bit more expensive, but maybe newer, in, in which case we would put it on a Libris? There's a lot of research that actually goes into seeing how much you're going to charge for something or to know what you have. So are they doing all that research to find out like how much is this book worth? They absolutely are. Yeah. At first we were just doing a quick scan of the, you know, scan on the back of a book for the newer books and just getting a sense. And we realized that there was real value in, you know, just really holding the book, looking at it, checking it for quality, seeing if there was anything tucked in the pages, understanding what the topic was, because, you know, in some cases we really do have to go back to, you know, what is a fiction or a nonfiction book? Or, you know, is this history? Is this something that is, a, you know, telling an actual story or is this a fictional story? So there's real value in looking at the books and understanding really the content, the, you know, the frame of reference. You know, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations about the books that come through. Sometimes they really something that is personal for them or something that is, you know, relevant in their life, something that they might be interested in, a place that they've never been to before and they want to talk about it. So, you know, rather than just scanning as many books as we can without even really looking at the cover, uh, we've decided that it makes sense to spend some time really looking at each book as they're coming in and understanding what the books are. When I was selling some specialty vintage and antique books online, the one thing that was always fascinating to me is that uh, sometimes books that I thought would be very valuable weren't, and vice versa. There were sometimes where books that I thought wouldn't be worth much of anything because they were old or maybe on a topic that I wasn't particularly interested in turned out to be super valuable. So have you all had experiences like that? Yes, we had a very generous donation just before COVID. It seems like everything is either before COVID or since COVID. (laughs) Before before times. (laughs) Yes. But it was relevant because sometimes folks will call us when they're closing down the home of a family member or a friend. And they say, well, you just come and get all the books. So it was one of those situations. We brought all these really old books to the safe place space put them in a special place because I knew they really needed some research and they sat there for over a year. So it took a little time for us to realize that we had a first edition of the awakening. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. I know it gives me chills because so often we're, we're talking about the value of the books, right. And having conversations with young people about what is valuable and what is not. And the underlying message behind what we're doing is everything, everyone really everyone is valuable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to pick up a book and realize that 
you know, it really could be something that's quite valuable. I took it to an archivist, someone that I know who's an archivist. And I said, what do you think? Does this, does this look like something? And he said, let me do a little research. And, and if it's not really something, I want to buy it from you. And he came back and he said, I can't buy it from you. <laughs> it really is an authentic first edition. Okay. So in that case, the sale of that book will give us the opportunity to employ probably, I'm fingers crossed, five young people. Oh my um, gosh. So that's when we get excited. We're working with an auction house right now so that we can try to get the most that we possibly can for it. So they'll promote it on a national sale of, I think it's manuscripts and books, something like that, whatever that particular yeah. topic is hmm. that they're focusing on. Yeah. So would you say that's kind of the like the most unusual or special book that, that you all have come across? Or have there been other things aren't going to necessarily generate as much, you know, money, but have been something that, you know, the young people have found interesting or intriguing? There seems to be quite a bit of interest in books about other places in the world. I decided it really was necessary to put up maps around the space where we work. So we have a Jefferson County map, a Kentucky map, United States map, and a world map up on the wall because so many conversations, you know, would come up like, I don't even know where the Pacific Northwest is, for example. And so it would be like, okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. So I think there's something about, you know, just trying to get a sense of where you are in the world. Those kinds of books seem to pique a lot of interest. Yeah. When we're talking about books that they want to take with them, and they're, they're welcome to make a stack of books, and we let them take so many books at a time. We'll save them forever if they want, if they want to come back for them. The kinds of books that they tend to want to take with them are cookbooks or like science fiction novels. So you had mentioned that you all take some time now to go th through the books. And at the Rosewater, there's a cool little uh, bulletin board there where we tack up things that we find in the books that are donated. I say we, I, I have never done that, but the person who is sorting them does that. And there's all kinds of cool things up there, People, things that people leave in books as impromptu bookmarks or just to keep. I'm wondering if you have found interesting things in the books that are donated to you. Absolutely. And we, we keep a lot of it. We have quite a bag full of you know bookmarks and prayer cards and letters, birthday cards, that sort of thing. And it's really been a lot of fun uh, to kind of see what people tuck away. I was working with one young person who was looking through a lot of books with me and just kind of seemed like maybe we had a lot that had a lot of stickiness on it or something. So we were spending a lot of time spiffing up these books. And he said, what do you think, Elizabeth, if we were to find money in one of these? <laughs> and I said, you know what? We actually could. So we kind of laugh about it and Maybe 15 minutes later, he opens a book and there was one of those fake million dollar bills. <laughs> I don't know exactly what they're advertising, but he freaked out. <laughs> and I said, well, Andy, if it had been real money, would you have split it with me? And he said, well, of course I would have. <laughs> <laughs> Liar. <laughs> The thing I find interesting about it is, you know, sometimes you'll find like a handwritten recipe that someone has used as a bookmark or yeah. a hall pass that they had put in a book when they were still a student. And it might be from the 1970s. It's sort of like this little capture in time, like this little slice of somebody's life right then as to what they were using as their bookmark. I don't know. I, I just find it really interesting <laughs> for it's some totally reason. It's true. Yeah. I, I was cleaning out books one day and a picture of my dad fell out and I didn't recognize the book. And as you can imagine, that was quite a surprise. I didn't know that it was a book connected to my family. And then I went back to my sisters and I'm like, did you donate this book? He said, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. I know. It was weird. What kind of feedback do you get from the young people that, that you work with? Yeah. You know, it's really important to me to have ongoing conversation with them about the kind of experience they're having. And as I said before, really what they want to get out of it. So I guess it's not too much of a surprise to me when I hear things like, does this have to be the end, right? Like when it's a summer program, you know, that is the end of that particular participation in the bookworks. They usually don't want it to be over. They want they want to know if they could come back and volunteer when there is a book sale. Can they come work the book sale? I think one of the most 
terrific experiences I had was when a young person said, I've, I've never had a place where I worked, where I felt like this, where somebody, you know, where the environment, the whole workplace was focused on positive energy and lifting people up. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what we're aiming for. Not every day is rainbows, of right. course. It can be very hot. It can be a lot of work. It can be long hours, you know, even five, six hours working at a book sale can be exhausting. So, you know, we take a step back and take a look, um, maybe what tools they need or how we need to retool, just kind of practicing those communication skills, make sure that they understand they should feel empowered to advocate for themselves or to look at their own behavior or their own choices and say, you know, maybe another way of doing this would work out better for me. I love what you were, you said earlier though, that just like every book is important, every person is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that would be a great motto for your program if you don't have a, a tagline already, but <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned the book sale and you have one of those coming up pretty soon. Is that correct? We do. We have one scheduled for this 18th and 19th of September. So it'll be 10 to 5 each day. We're on the campus of YMCA Safe Place in their Youth Development Center. You know, all the books are a dollar to two dollars. Uh, we'll have we had an incredible donation of new DVDs, some popular films, but some indie films too. So I think there'll be a lot of interest in these. We've never offered them before. Yeah, going to be a lot of fun. So if someone would like to donate to your organization, how do they do that? So they are welcome to give us an email at any time at donations at thebookworks.org. They can also call or text us at 502-354-3667. There's a a way to sign up for our newsletter on the website. That's thebookworks.org. And what we'll do for folks who are part of the newsletter or on social media We'll announce a time when we're doing book pickups. We're, we don't do that every day of the week or every uh, week of the month even, but we will schedule book pickups. And um, that's a great way to not have to hassle with anything. You just put it on your front porch and we come and pick it up. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Elizabeth, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Elizabeth and Carrie. Carrie, we're heading into September. What's on your TBR? What are you reading right now? Well, I have like three minutes left of an audiobook. So I stopped at three minutes remaining on my on my audiobook so that I could record with you and Elizabeth. The book that I am reading is a real, well, you have to have a strong stomach, I think, to enjoy this book. It's called The Ghost Map, the story of London's most terrifying epidemic and how it changed science, cities, and the modern world by Stephen Johnson. Now, the reason I say you need a strong stomach is because the epidemic was cholera. And so you get to hear all about what the sanitary conditions were or were not in 1850s London. And it's pretty disgusting. Reading this book has made me have all sorts of feelings about sewers <laughs> and, and positive feelings about sewers. Like I am so happy we have sewers and we have the kind of water filtration systems and we have sensors that monitor the amounts of different things in the water. This book takes you and drops you into London before they had a a true sewer system. And there was a, a pretty severe cholera outbreak that killed many, many people. And the problem was at that time, they thought it was because of bad smells. All the sewage in the street caused the bad smell, but they thought it was actually the bad smell that was causing everybody to get sick. That's exactly right. The people who believed this were called miasmatists. I have heard about this before. During the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, because you know there weren't sewers and there weren't kind of the sanitary waste management things that we have now, 
cities just tended to stink a little more. And so people thought, oh, well, it stinks. That's where whatever disease they were being faced with, that's where it came from. And so in reading this book about London, that same approach is what people believe. They also, a lot of people believe, well, if the people are poor and they live in squalid conditions, well, of course they're going to get sick because they're poor, you know? So there was kind of this idea that if you're poor, you're disgusting or whatever. And so this book is about how a physician who actually studied anesthesiology, he used ether on people to help them through surgery. So that's what he had studied. He was actually the the physician who really delved into epidemiology to figure out that the cholera was not coming from the air. It was coming from this particular pump in London where people were getting their water. And so it was really fascinating. You know, he didn't have a background in public health or epidemiology, but from his background, the fact that he had studied ether, he knew that just because something smells bad, it doesn't mean it's it's going to make you sick. And so he understood that the miasmatists didn't really know what they were talking about. Like I said, pretty disgusting at the beginning when they were talking about what the sanitary conditions were like and what it is like to have cholera. Not fun, pretty gross. But it was super fascinating because a lot of what they talk about is what we're dealing with now. And I guess it made me feel a little bit better because my historical perspective, I'm almost 48. And so I've only known what life was like for 48 years. And so the fact now that we have a pandemic and people arguing about, well, it's this, well, it's that, well, it's, you know, and, and having all these debates and, and people going a little bit nuts. Well, this is sort of normal. When there is a disease that people don't fully understand and they're trying to figure out what's going on and what's happening and the science is trying to catch up to the fact that people are getting sick and dying, this is sort of what happens. You have people who have one mindset and they think, well, it's this way. And then you have the people who are trying to actually find the data to find out what's really happening. So I I guess in some sense, you know, they say read about history because it helps you understand your current situation better. And so it makes me feel like, oh, okay, people throughout history have done this over and over and over again, but because nobody who's alive now was alive in 1850s, we don't have anybody to go, yeah, we've done this before. That doctor sounded like he was kind of like a medical detective, right? He was. He was. And he actually worked with a curate. He was uh, had parishioners in this particular neighborhood that was really hit hard by cholera. And so the two of them, John Snow had, he was a physician. The curate had no medical background, but they kind of put their heads together and worked together to figure things out. And so what happened was they created this map of where people died and where these pumps were. And so it was this London map and that map ended up developing a life of its own. And that map is used and the map that inspired a lot of the things we do now, like Google maps and a lot of the tools and techniques that are used in public health came as a result of that map. So, you know, if you're interested in history or public health, or if you just need a a little more perspective on epidemics or pandemics, this book is really fascinating. So again, don't eat while you're listening to it or reading it, but you might enjoy it other than that part. So It does sound very interesting, but I'm very surprised that you read it because you don't like things that talk about germs. I don't. Do you? No, yeah. not really. Not really. Anyway. Well, Elizabeth, <laughs> what have you been reading? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I'm very glad to hear that audiobooks count because I was going to share. Absolutely, they count. I think that's awesome. And second of all, that uh, nonfiction, that is always what attracts me, you know, is to learn. Fiction isn't nearly as interesting to me as nonfiction. So I'm going to mention two books that I listened to during a road trip. I was taking a very long road trip by myself. 
and decided that two books about a very stressful, very difficult wrenching topic would be the way to, to pass the time. <laughs> but, but they seemed right because as everyone knows, last summer in Louisville and really the epicenter, I think uh, was Louisville in many ways, but the entire world was really grappling with racial injustice. And so, you know, I had three days of driving. And so I picked up Cast, oh, The Origins yeah. of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson and Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. I've read that one. That one, I love it. I mean, just two books on the same, really essentially the same topic of racial injustice, different points of view, both nonfiction, both true accounts. Obviously, Trevor Noah kind of brings you in with his humor and his just really engaging way of talking and talking about his life. But Isabel Wilkerson's way of writing is, you know, just as interesting. I I don't know, wrenching, right? I, I think to really look at not just racism and to understand how that affects people, because there are obviously personal stories in both of those books, but to look at how the systems have perpetuated very unequal treatment. I don't know. It was, it was an important thing, I think, to confront. Kind of wish I had somebody with me to debrief some of that. But on the other hand, if I had, I wouldn't have listened to both books from beginning to end without stopping. So It's almost like they pair together. I mean, I have not read Cast, but that one, is, I think, is more of like a creative nonfiction or straight nonfiction, whereas Born a Crime by Trevor Noah is a, is a memoir. And he grew up in South Africa during the end of apartheid. So his is a much more personal account of how such a caste system, a racial caste system would work. So it seems like they would sort of play off one another. Did you find that to be the case? Yeah. I don't know that I so um, purposefully decided to read them together. I mean, I downloaded several books. I think I read cast first or listened to it first. And that made me more interested in, in Trevor Noah's. I actually thought Trevor Noah's story would be, you know, a bit of a relief quite frankly, selfishly wanting to laugh a little bit after, mm-hmm. you know, listening to cast, it was just as serious, right? Even though yeah. with a lot of humor, just really serious stuff, but really important. I mean, being uncomfortable to learn about stuff is something that I think all of us have to do. So yeah, I, w- I was super glad to put them together, to have them both with me on that journey and to be hopefully a little bit more aware and awake. The book cast, is that one mainly about the United States or does it delve into other countries as well? Yeah, she talks about how the Nazis and I think it is South Africa and India, just a handful in the United States, right? Okay. A handful of examples of where really systemic oppression based on the way somebody looks yeah. and, and the opportunities not being there, the benefit of the doubt, all kinds of opportunities being portioned out because of where folks are perceived to belong on, on a caste system, which is much deeper than just racism. An individual might be racist, but a system has to implement a caste. Good. Yeah, that's on my list. For sure. Good choices. Yeah, yeah. Those are good ones. Well, Amy, did you listen to an audiobook? Because so far, it's two against maybe one here. No, and both of your books all sound so serious, and mine is not really. I'm the- <laughs> I am part of a YA book club that started, oh, at the beginning of the year. We read young adult fiction. And the book that we just finished and had a meeting about was a book called Neanderthal Opens the Door to the Universe by Preston Norton. And one of the things I like about YA is that often it's a really good palate cleanser from other types of books that I'm reading. I can usually read them pretty quickly. And I like them because to me, somehow, they always feel like they have this energy to them. And admittedly, I usually read YA books that feature young women. And this particular book was a bit different because it featured several male main characters And it definitely had a dude feel to it. And there's no mistaking that this book was written by a man and is about young men. And normally I would predict that it wouldn't necessarily land with the group of people that I was with, which is middle-aged women. But everyone universally enjoyed this book. And it's a book about a 16-year-old teenage boy named Cliff Hubbard. 
who everyone in school has nicknamed Neanderthal because he's so tall and husky. He's like 6'6", 250 pounds. He's built like a linebacker for the football team, but he's not. He's not interested in sports at all. He's a bit of a loner, but not by choice. He's ostracized by the other kids, and they call him Neanderthal, but not in a in a fun way. His brother committed suicide the year before, although he doesn't really know why. His dad is an abusive alcoholic, and he lives in a rundown trailer, so it doesn't sound like it's going to be a super light book. But one weekend, the captain of the football team, whose name is Aaron, who's like sort of the king of the popular kids, suffers a head trauma while boating, and he's unconscious for several hours, and he's hospitalized. But when he recovers and comes back to school, he searches Cliff down and says that he saw God when he had his near-death experience, and God gave him a list of things he needed to do, and that God insisted that he needed Cliff's help to complete the list. Aaron has never actually had a conversation with Cliff prior to this exchange, except to make fun of him. So understandably, Cliff is skeptical and thinks it's a big joke. But eventually, he realizes that Aaron is dead serious, and Cliff agrees to help him. So the the list includes things that will help their high school, in quotes, not suck. So there are four things on the list to help their vindictive English teacher, Mr. Spinelli, remember why he used to love to teach. The second one is to, to stop a mysterious computer hacker at the school. Number three is to convince a local drug dealing gang that they don't really want to sell drugs. And the fourth item is to show an evangelical student cult called the JTs or the Jesus teens that maybe their actions don't really line up with what Jesus would have done. And so what happens in the process of both of them working to complete this list is that Aaron and Cliff become best friends. And Cliff finally feels like he has a purpose to try to fix his broken school and in the end helps to heal himself. So we just had our discussion about this book the other night, and there were a couple things that stuck out to me about this book. First of all, the writing is snappy, funny, and wicked smart. It's fast-paced, and there are tons of pop culture references in here. The dialogue is witty, and it's a hopeful book, even though there's lots of serious topics in here. And even though I would call it a bro book, the women in my group really liked it. The young men, while obviously feeling all those testosterone surges, they were also bigger than that. They were sensitive and thoughtful, even if that isn't what they projected at school. The serious topics in here are suicide, bullying, drug use, and some violence, but it was was refreshing for me to see a story where the nauseatingly cool kid befriends the totally uncool kid and they can teach each other something. And I know that there are other books or movies that have done this trope, but it really worked for me in this one. And in many ways, it felt like a 1980s John Hughes movie, like Pretty in Pink or The Breakfast Club, but updated for a 2020 kid. So it includes things like gay students and social media. And I love John Hughes movies, so this was totally a plus for me. Um, So I think for the right reader, I would totally recommend this book. All right, very good. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, Elizabeth can answer her three about me. We are back with Elizabeth and Alfie, and we're going to ask her her three about me. So you have a new grandson who lives in Alaska. You obviously don't get to see him all the time. So tell us what you do to connect with him. Yeah, I mean, I, there isn't a conversation that I have that I don't mention being a new grandmother, by the way. So <laughs> He obviously is not able to enjoy this very much, but I have kind of restarted my practice of learning different kinds of art. And so uh, once a week, I will take a five by seven card, just a piece of paper, do some sort of art on one side of it, write him a note on the other side. So now I guess he has, you know, a year and two months worth of weekly notes from his grand. And I have had a chance to see what I'm good at again in art and, and mostly not so good at, but enjoying the, the process of it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. If, if his parents keep those and eventually give those to him, that will be such an amazing thing for him to have as a memento of you as he gets older. That's amazing. 
Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I try to integrate some things from Kentucky, you know, so he understands his Kentucky roots. So it, it's, I think it's been a lot of fun. What kind of little art things are you doing? So I did this one series where I would cut out colored paper and do like one would have a bird on it. One would have tree trunk, like different aspects of what trees, like one would have leaves on it. So paper cut out or sometimes watercolor, I mean, just little doodles. Mm-hmm. Silly things. Super cool. All right. Well, so it is September. Fall is right around the corner. We got a little taste of it this week when it was rainy and cool. And I started thinking about my fire pit, which is one of the things that I love to do once the weather starts cooling down. So what is something that you tend to like to do in the fall? Well, maybe not surprising to say I really love the St. James Art Festival. We do have listeners who are not in Louisville, so explain Ah, what that is. Oh, exciting. Well, come to Louisville the first uh, weekend in October. I think it's the largest concentration of Victorian homes in the country in old Louisville. And I don't know how many hundreds of artists come from all over the United States and display their art. So it's super cool, you know, just to be able to walk up and down, see where people are coming from. Every kind of art medium is represented there. And I think that's what I love about it the most. You know, you see fabric artists and um, stained glass and potters and just a little bit of everything. Last year, I think it was canceled. Do you know if it's going to go on this year? I'm worried about checking out everything, right? Like you just kind of wake up in the morning, see if it's something. (laughs) I know. Like, what can I do today? (laughs) Do it each day as it comes. I think that's the only thing we can do right now. But yeah. I, at the moment, I think it's I think it's planned. I'm sure the booths will be uh, spaced out, or yeah, we've all gotten creative, haven't we, with staying away from people? So yeah. The cool thing about the St. James is that while you're walking around looking at the art, and it's all really high quality, it's you know it's juried art. You also get to walk and admire all these old Victorian homes, and so it's like a, a double treat. So that's what I love about it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, crisp weather. So your last question is that you work with young people all day long. So what are some ways that you try to connect with them? And what is one of the technologies that the young people you work with use that you've been surprised by? It's a great question. And it, and it really does imply, you know, that there is a bit of a generation gap. So, you know, how are we able to find common ground? And I think there's something really important about that being one aspect of this. You know, we certainly do hire young people who are of the similar age, so they have that peer support and connection with each other. But, you know, I'm a bit of an outlier, but I think that's important, right? I think building a connection with them really comes down to listening. I, I try to hold back on all the advice and, you know, rambling of, wisdom because they have a lot of it already. They've experienced a lot in life. I think the most affirming thing we can do most of the time is just to sit and listen and just say that reflect back on what it is that they're experiencing and what they might be able to to learn from it. In terms of technology, I think they very often look at me and make an assumption that maybe the technology is pretty new for me, that maybe I need a lot of help and guidance and being able to navigate it, which I think is absolutely right. You know, I'll I'll take any instruction that I possibly can. So we sometimes have fun around that. I know a lot of it. So, you know, I think we're probably on par in terms of the technology. The one area that I still am kind of scratching my head over is the social media. Like, what is it? Why is that their main form of communication? So, so I'm sure that you have experienced, and by experience, I don't necessarily mean on there, although maybe you have, TikTok. Have they talked to you about TikTok? I don't really understand TikTok. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with TikTok. The yeah. question is, have you made a TikTok video with the young people that you work with? That's a great question and an awesome <laughs> idea. And I have not done that. No one has said, Elizabeth, come over here. You need to be part. Well, maybe, maybe you need to be the one to instigate it and that'll really blow their minds. I, it would absolutely blow their minds. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. If you have a theme, if there are any ideas of what that, the theme of that TikTok video might be, that's safe 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. I need to ask my 17 and 13 year olds what they think. Maybe there's something bookish on there, like a, a dance related to a book that you could do or something. I, well, I keep there- seeing there, these dances. Well, there is a whole part of TikTok that's called book talk, that it's young people talking about books that they like. Oh, that's cool. I'll check that out because I think they would really enjoy that. I really do. I haven't worked with a young person yet who hasn't been able to tell me about a book that really meant something to them. And maybe it was a book that they haven't seen since the second grade. But, you know, they all they all have a book that has some meaning to them. So that would be cool. Yeah. Well, please let us know if it is on TikTok. Let us know and I'll go have my kids show it to me since I don't even have TikTok on my phone. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for telling us about BookWorks. And the you said the sale is supposed to be the weekend of September 17th. Is that right? That's right. Thank you so much. You can find the BookWorks on Instagram at the Bookworks Lou or on Facebook at the Bookworks Louisville. Their website is www.thebookworks.org. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.